Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime Interviews. I'm investigative journalist Adam Shand. Today we go back to Melbourne's gangland war and the events that led to Carl Williams' murder in Barwin Prison in 2010. My guest today is former Barwin prison guard turned inmate Ashley Langsworth. This story played out in the Supermax units of Barwin from 2004. Units like Acacia and Melaleuca were used to break the silence of hitmen and their bosses. In the end, most opened like rotten fruit falling to the ground. And it was the oppressive conditions in Barwin that influenced that change of mind. 23-hour lockdowns for weeks on end, no daylight, terrible food and no contact visits with family. Once offered deals and an exit from this rigorous isolation, these crooks became very talkative. The media knew that Barwin was a pressure cooker, but rarely knew the detail of what went on in there. There was no sympathy for the inmates from the general public, who expect jails to be hard, dangerous places, where crooks must give up all information and their dignity or face the consequences. Prison officers get to go home every night, but they experience much of what the inmates do during their shifts, and it leaves a mark on them. As my guest discovered, the roles can quickly be reversed. Ashley was a prison officer in Barwin Jail for 15 years and witnessed disturbing and iconic events in Melbourne's criminal history. Suffering untreated trauma, Ash then found himself behind bars. But that's all behind him now, and I'd like to welcome him to the show. G'day, Ash. G'day, Adam. How are you? Very well, mate. That day when you went from blue to green, you're in jail, having been a prison officer. What was that like? Well, I can remember that day um, vividly. At, uh, I was working at Gravillia Unit, unlocking prisoners, and then I got a uh, phone call off an operations manager to come out the front of the prison, which I did. There was a few detectives there, asked me a few questions and arrested me for... Um, the crimes I did commit. That first night, what was, you know, the door slams behind you? What was well, my first experience of being locked in a cell was just after my interview uh, with the detectives and uh, I had to apply for bail, which I did, but that took a, a few hours to get in front of the magistrate and I was locked inside a, uh, a prison cell or a holding cell. It was terrifying. Um, to answer your question about my first night, it was... Um, an unbelievable feeling, a feeling that I'll never forget. It was a helpless feeling, realisation that, you know, I, I did commit crimes and hurt somebody and and now I've got to go through this. And that loss of liberty, I think people can gloss over, oh, jail's a, a country club and all these privileges and so on and so yeah. forth, but you know it's not. What is that loss of liberty like? Can you describe it? Adam, the, the only thing I did miss was my daughter and my family. Everything else to me, uh, I didn't miss at all. I knew what I was getting myself into when I was being sentenced because I had 16 years of prison life behind me and um, the uh, the mobile phones and the Foxtel and going out at night and alcohol and I didn't miss that one bit. You sat in your cell that night and you sobbed. I did. 
I did cry. Um, now, I've seen a lot of prisoners cry over the times, and I thought they were a bit soft. When you get locked away and that cell door closes and it's just you in there, you can't describe the feeling. Adam, it's, um, it's just terrible. This story begins 16 years before then because I think it all leads up to that moment. Tell me, how did you become a prison officer? I was between jobs and uh, a friend of mine that I've known for some time with the local football club, he um, was a prison officer himself. He just told me to apply, so I did, and um, I got through. I thought, gee whiz, this could be a good career, you know, and it was great. I felt, you know, I felt really good that I got a, a real job, a job that pays well, and I thought that I've got a job for life unless you stuff up, and I did have. <laughs> and you had no intention of stuffing up then? N- none whatsoever. What was your attitude to, to criminals and law-breaking? Initially, um, you put the blue uniform on and uh, you've got the power. And uh, I've no drama saying that I probably abused that power initially in the first couple of years and um, treated prisoners with disrespect. And um, Give me an example of that. Well, you've got the power. I I remember you talking down to prisoners. They wear green and and the prison staff wear blue and you talk down to them. It's quite easy to say no and talk to them disrespectively, which I did. I treated them like second-class citizens. You know, the, the first couple of years of my um, employment. Because the jail is a place of punishment. The public expects <laughs> crims to do it tough. Yeah. What impact does that have on the prison officers who are dealing with the inmates? Yeah, well, going through the course, they, uh, they soon tell you that the prison officers aren't here to judge or treat any prisons in not the right manner um, because we're there to maintain the good order of management of the prison and not to um, treat the prisoners any differently. But staff do take things into their own hands and do the wrong thing. What kind of things? If a prisoner was uh, did the wrong thing to a staff member, I've witnessed plenty of times where staff have gone into a cell and um, beat up on the prisoner, leaving them bloodied and, and injured. Did also, you do that? No, <laughs> not at all, Adam. I, uh, I witnessed it. Um, I got assaulted plenty of times. Because you can't let these people get over you. As much as you may have sympathy for them, they're also cunning, desperate individuals backed into a corner. So is there a sense among the prison officers that you have to be be tough? I think back then you did. uh, And the sense amongst the prison officers were, yeah, we're going to treat these guys, you know, pretty hard. But over the years, programs come into prisons and um, rehabilitation. The prisons aren't there to be punished. Their punishment is being locked up at night not going home to their families. So during my 16 years at Bowen, they go from ruling with an iron fist to going through the programs and, and addressing their prisoners' offending behaviour. Yeah, so you went to Bowen early on in your career. I was at Bowen the entire career. 2003 I started and uh, until my arrest in 2018. Because 2003 was a very auspicious year, shall we say, in Melbourne. The gangland war just blew up. Yeah, into prominence. Carl Williams was out there killing people. And by the end of 2003 uh, and into 2004, Barwon was starting to receive the combatants in the war. And from afar, we journalists could see the way the management units were being used in Barwon to put pressure on the inmates to see if they would cooperate with police, give information, so on and so forth. And there was a very, it seemed to us, a very well thought out process. You were seeing it up close. 
what, what was going on? I was fortunate enough to be uh, recruited to go into Acacia uh, early on in my career, in the first couple of months. And uh, in that time, we had, like you said, the gangland prisoners. I lived it. Uh, I saw a lot. It was pretty intimidating at times. You see these people on, on TV and uh, shooting people and all of a sudden you're feeding them breakfast, lunch and tea and then locking them up at night. And uh, it was a surreal feeling. A, lo- a lot of the prisoners are in that high security unit. The big names, uh, they all treated staff with respect and they got respect back. So for those who haven't seen a management unit, just, just describe what Acacia is. Acacia in 2003 when I was there was a, um, a high security unit for the state. It held the most dangerous prisoners, I suppose you could call it. It's four units within one. Um, in unit one, you've got six cells. Unit two, you've got, uh, for memory, ten. Unit three, you've got four, and they're double cells. And unit four, you've got four. They're loss of privileges cells that now have been, or back then were, converted into uh, normal accommodation. I think it houses uh, up to 24 prisoners. So prisoners back then in unit one to unit two to unit three, um, they were segregated, so they couldn't have any contact with each other. And also within the units themselves, prisoners would also be confined on a segregation regime, um, so they couldn't have any contact with the other prisoners in that in that unit at times. Because Acacia, to the old hands, was the successor to H Division in Pentridge, which yeah. was isolation units. You rarely saw anybody else. You could hear them. Yeah. And it was a very, it was a pressure cooker that broke a lot of people. In fact, it turned a lot of people going to H Division from common thieves into murderers when they came out. Yeah. Was Acacia, in your view, as bad as H Division? There was a more uh, relaxed feeling than H Division would have been, I'd imagine. Um, a lot more comforts. Um, when I first got there, um, all they had was an exercise yard and that was it. But over time, they got televisions, pool tables, table tennis tables, treadmills, bicycles. Sadly, a bicycle. Sadly, an exercise bike, yes. Yeah. Yeah, because people would write to me out of out of Acacia, Carl Williams, Tommy Ivanovic and others, and they would say, I can't do the time in here. It's too hard. I, yeah. I, I, no daylight, very little fresh air. Yeah. It was deliberately meant to be oppressive because, as I said before, I could see the Piranha Task Force was using Acacia and, the, and the, the way people were placed and who they were placed with as a means of putting pressure because, in the end, that's where the gangland war was solved, in my opinion. Well... I look back at the time and uh, there was a, a unit called the Major Offenders Unit and uh, that was um, organised in early on 2000s when the gangland wars were uh, starting or, or going on and they used to manage all these prisoners, the high security unit prisoners, um, and we had to report back to them each day about the prisoners' behaviour and what they got up to, going from a phone call to what they did on the uh, in the yard to their demeanour and um, so forth and... The Piranha Task Force, they used to come in, I'd say, every other day to visit prisoners. And at times, the process for coming into Acacia was anybody coming into Acacia had to be walked through a, a metal detector, wandered down with a garret wand, and also patted down physically. But at times, the Piranha Task Force detectives bypassed all that security, and we were told just to escort them into the visit room. So they could have brought anything with them? They could have. I dare say they did. Again, there was a strategy at play. Yeah. Ah. So what, did, what What would you suspect? Was there evidence <clears throat> of things getting in still? Not the, I mean, I can't confirm that or deny that, but I would assume that they would have 
brought phones or um, listening devices in so they could record their conversations with prisoners in um, in their attempt to try and um, win over a prisoner to give evidence on another prisoner, which did happen over time. And um, in actual fact, the Piranha Task Force did take a number of staff out from the Acacia um, unit for an evening. Um, and that was all paid for by the Piranha Task Force. And um, we got given a exclusive s- slideshow on the arrest and the surveillance on Carl Williams, mm. which is quite interesting. So you were you were kind of part of the machinery, weren't you, really? And, and uh, as I say, it's fascinating to think that you've got police detectives going through the security or avoiding the security, putting in listening devices, gathering evidence against their targets, yeah. while also getting information from prison officers and then yeah. those two, two things to match up. So I think the, the inmates... I think I spoke to several and they kind of felt that they were like mice in, mm. in a wheel kind yeah. of thing or watched all the time. At the time, it made our job a bit difficult because we had to uh, deal with these prisoners on a daily basis and you had to get up, you know, um, have some sort of rapport with them. And then at times when the Piranha Task Force guys come in, they said, listen, don't tell prisoner blogs that we're here to see them, but go and get them for us. So we did. So the prisoners at the time, you know, they said, hang on. Mr. Langsworth, you told me you don't know who's here, but you would have known that the police were here to speak to us. Don't do that again. So then it puts a relationship, professional relationship between the prisoner and back then the staff member on a knife's edge because you've got to build up a, a some sort of rapport with the prisoner over over time and then all of a sudden you just um, shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah, and because in those situations where there's any doubt, there's no doubt, if someone goes off for a secret meeting, they're assumed to be a dog, an informer. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of, um, in Unit 3, <laughs> where Carl was and uh, a few other guys, that, well, two guys uh, decided to inform on Carl from Unit 3 and um, none of them wanted to go for a visit because they all thought, you know, they're going to give evidence against them. That was a difficult time. There was such pressure. Let's call him the runner, one of Carl's yep. hitmen. He was in contact with me from... Acacia, and he was doing it very tough. Carl had not paid him for mm. the, the work that he'd done killing people. Yeah. His mother was not being looked after. He yeah. was under incredible pressure. He'd done all kinds of things. He'd, he bronzed himself up with his own excrement mm. uh, to avoid giving evidence, all these different things. Yeah. And so, and you saw the other guy in there who I called Goggles who began to give evidence as well. Yeah. So the atmosphere in Acacia must have been poisonous. It was toxic. Um the runner, as you described him, um, I think he was the first prisoner to inform on Carl. And he was, uh, he didn't interact often with staff. He kept uh, very private. But I remember uh, he got taken out of a case, I think it'd be at three o'clock in the morning. I got to work that day and he was gone. And straight away, you, you know what's happened. You think you know what's happened. And, um, and then you're hearing the whispers in the unit. Where's the yeah. runner gone? Yeah. What's he doing? Who's he talking to? That's right. Then all of a sudden, you've got to speak to Carl first thing in the morning and he's quite agitated and angry, as you'd imagine. The tension's building all through this period. Yeah. You can tell. And and cases are being solved. The public's going, yes, you know, yeah. this is great. And Barwon was right at the centre of it. Did you feel this was the mechanism mm. how this war was being resolved? Yeah. I didn't realise at the time, but I, on reflection, yeah, I... We got used as, as um, puppets by Piranha. 
and you were part of a, a wheel, as you described earlier. And uh, I look back and I thought, gee whiz, you know, some of the stuff they did, that's the police. Um, I didn't agree with, but I should have spoke up. But if you did get, if you did speak up, you would have been kicked out and frowned upon. And it wasn't your place. No, it wasn't your Not place at all. at all. But on a human level, because you're starting to become closer with these inmates. Yeah, yeah, you, you deal with them each day, and you know their um, what they get up to each day, and you deal with their family members. Uh, at the time, they used to get three, four, or five visits a week. Well, I don't know how because they're only allowed one, but um, they did. And you deal with uh, their family members, and, and you get to know them on a more of a personal level than, I suppose, a general type prisoner. And you'd have met Roberta Williams. I met Roberta a couple of times. <laughs> Everyone has that reaction. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I... <clears throat> She's threatened to bash me that many times. Yeah. It's not funny. <clears throat> I, which, I don't have was any... Was similarly kind of uh, excitable? No, look, um, Roberta, Roberta treated the staff well. I don't have a bad word to say about Roberta, um, nor would I say it. But um, she, she treated the staff with respect. I think she understood that Carl's destiny was in the hands of staff. Yeah. And therefore, if she arced up, It'd go badly for Carl. Yeah, it would make his time a bit more difficult. But back then, the supervisor of Acacia, he was uh, very professional. He um, wouldn't allow anything uh, untoward go on. There's a saying that over time, the green starts to infect the blue. Is that well, true? It possibly. I think over my 16 years, um, it, it did affect me, I, I believe. Um, I suppose, what do you call it? The Stockholm Syndrome. I believe I was a victim of that. You sort of see of how management play games with the prisoners and, and you can see what's right and what's wrong. And the way I sort of felt is I, I like to stand up for what's right. And at times management were playing games with a lot of prisoners. If they didn't like them, they wouldn't get, you know, uh, what other prisoners would get. And so, and one word from a prison officer could make that happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. April 2010, Carl Williams is murdered. Yeah. Where were you on that day? I was driving past a local pub at the time and my wife rang me up and said Carl's been killed and I said there's no way he could be killed. And um, sure enough, I got home and put the news on and he was dead. So I couldn't understand it at the time, but, um, you know, with what I know now, <laughs> he should not have been mixing with Matthew Johnson that day. After being uh, after reading the Herald Sun, he shouldn't have been allowed out. Funny thing that, I mean, I'd spoken to Carl the previous weekend on the phone, and I'd asked him the very question: "Are you okay with Maddie Johnson?" Because I knew what was coming. Yeah, I'd had that story a few weeks before, by the way. Okay, I'd been here at Triple M, and Roberta Williams came out of doing an interview with Eddie Maguire. Yeah, and she said to me, "You won't believe it, the cops are going to pay Dakota's school fees." Yeah, I said, what? And I weighed up that story long and hard and didn't write it in the end. Yeah. And then when I heard it was being going to run, I was very concerned. Yeah. And I spoke to Carl and he he was concerned. No, there's, yeah. no, there's no doubt about that. But he wasn't concerned about Maddie per se. Mm. Was there any evidence that he should have been, do you think? Well, a few months later, um, the prison's internal investigations come and spoke to a number of people. I was one of those people and... They asked me, um, could have it have been avoided? And I said, absolutely. I said, if I was in that unit at that time, 
with my supervisor that was my supervisor when I was in there years earlier, I said, we wouldn't have unlocked that door that day. We would have managed that situation up to major offenders unit or as high as we could go because everybody knows Matthew Johnson doesn't like dogs, people that inform one other prisoners. And, and I think by that time there'd been a general acceptance in the prison population that Carl was going to tell stories about everyone. That was the fear. Yeah. So I wonder whether Matthew Johnson was then, I guess, further freed from consequences. Yeah, I'm not too sure. I mean, I was working Malaluka at the time and I, I just don't know. I, when you're not working the unit, you don't get the feel and you don't sort of, um, the people within that unit keep to themselves and they don't like discussing other things that happened with other people. Um, so I, I, I don't know, Adam. Yeah, because this is one of the great conspiracy theories that still get around, how yeah. Carl Williams was killed under all these cameras, yeah. all this security, all this stuff, and, he, and Matthew Johnson's able to take the stem off an exercise bike and brain him eight times mm. and kill him. No one still sees. In fact, they had to report it. Yeah. So there's a great conspiracy theory that somebody had nobbled the whole system. Yeah. What's the reality from inside? The reality is the unit's very busy. And, uh, look, it should have been picked up earlier. There's cameras there, but at that time, the cameras were pretty poor. I can't believe it took, what, half an hour or so? Yeah, I can't understand that, but I've got no answers. Yeah, because I guess in life, when you're faced with a conspiracy or a fuck-up, I always go for the fuck-up, right? Yeah. Because the human being's involved. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a human environment, yeah. and I think it's very hard for prison officers to know what's going on if one inmate doesn't say, I'm scared of him. Yeah, Carl, I don't believe Carl would ever say that. He was a very confident person and uh, I don't think he would ever put his hand up and say that, you know, I'm in fear of my life. He might have spoke to Roberta and told Roberta that. I don't know, but he was a very confident person. Yeah, for a guy who wasn't physically prepossessing, wasn't a good fighter, I think he relied upon being a good bloke mostly and, yeah. and bringing people to him in this sort of how fellow well met thing. Yeah, I mean, my opinion of Carl, he treated me well and, and staff. The other fellow staff well. Um, Treated me well too. Yeah. You know, what he did outside of prison, I don't know, and I suppose uh, speculation, but it's not great. But how he treated me was uh, respectful. Yeah, that's right. So he's killed. Matthew Johnson goes into an isolation cell. That's where you come in. Yeah, the following day I was working Malaluka, the other high security unit, and um, I got a phone call by intelligence to uh, get a year on collection off um, Matt Johnson. So I took a colleague of mine and uh, we went to the loss of privilege area where he was housed, took him to the year on collection room and um, and collected the year on sample. But during the – Matt doesn't talk much to uh, staff members at all. During the, uh, the collection process, he asked me for a shower. And I said, uh, what do you want a shower for, Matt? He said – I'll never forget those words. I've got – I've got to wash all Carl's brains off me. I said, come on, man. I said, I don't want to hear that. And then he said, what's the problem, boss? You know, people die every day. No, I was just, I was gobsmacked. I could not believe word, those words had come out of his mouth. What did that mean to you? I was just in utter shock. I thought, what the hell, you know? So, And you've, you've been in the prison system for a long time by now. Well, that would have been, and you'd uh, seen death in prison before, had you yeah, not? Oh, uh, not, not death. I've seen suicides. I've seen suicides, yeah, absolutely. I've seen suicides and I've seen, you know, prisoners severely injured, stabbed and, and bashed. But um, it just, it took me by surprise that somebody could actually say that 
when they did the act a day earlier. So I, I, I took Matty back to um, the cell and uh, I reported that to my um, day shift supervisor and he um, he asked me for a report, which I did. I, I lodged a report and that was it. Uh, but then I got a phone call maybe a week, couple of weeks or a month later and I had to go and to the exec room and there was a detective there from the Victoria Police wanted me to make a statement in regard to what Matt had said on during that collection process. Yeah, and then you gave evidence in court. and Yeah, which, you know, I, I didn't want to. Um, Why not? <laughs> well, you're a prison officer, that's your job, and you've got to deal with prisoners each day. And for an example, Adam, uh, when Matthew Johnson got his um, brief of evidence by uh, Victoria Police, it took less than 24 hours and all the prisoners in that unit in Malaluka unit where I was working, all turned on me. Um, you know, I had death threats. Reported that to management and... Uh, Simply because you'd done your job and reported what had been said to you. That's right. They expected yeah. you to be on Johnson's yeah. side. That's right. Why? Why would they expect anything less Oh, I just think um, any any chance to um, have a go at a staff member and to side with Matty Johnson, if they side with him, they're protected. So you're expendable in that situation. yeah. yeah. So I did. I, I went home and I was in, in fear. I didn't know what was going to happen. And so I reported that to management and uh, they said, oh, you'll be right. I got to work the next day and they, um, I think that's when David Prudeau spoke to me. He moved me up to Castlemaine Prison, Lodden Prison. I was up there for two weeks. And I, I returned and they moved me to a, a management unit and Banksy, a management unit, where um, I was confronted with another uh, Prisoner by the name of Rodney Collins. Rodney Earl Collins. Rodney Earl Collins, One of the most cold-blooded killers Victoria's ever produced. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the first chance he got, he called me down to, um, he was in a caged area at the front of his cell, and he called me down to um, that area. And I could go down there by myself because I was only three, four metres away from the the unit console. And he said, Mr. Langsworth, he goes, "Um, you give evidence against, uh, against Matty? And I said, yeah, I have. He goes, you're a dead man. I said, okay, and I walked away. And again, I reported that to management and nothing happened. How'd that make you feel? It made me feel sick in the guts, expendable. Um, I soon realised that uh, I was just a number, just a number and... Just a cog in that wheel. They just don't care. I felt they just don't care. I was on a time off. Over the time, over a period of time, and um, through work cover and through uh, PTSD and depression, and you just get pressure by management to come back to work. You know, um, I can see how difficult this is to talk about even now. Yeah, you've done it in court, you've done it in jail, but here you are years later. I, I can still see it, it, it's emotional for you. This was the start of a pretty steep decline for you. Very steep. What happened? Probably the last 10 years of my career at the prison, I, I was, I, I um, turned to alcohol. And I would say that I was an alcoholic. I would drink 10 to 15 beers, cans of beer each night, every night for 10 years. Um, just to self-medicate. And um, Did it work? At the time, I thought, yes, this is great, you know. Um, you go to work. I don't know how I functioned. 
you had a family at the same time, wife and a kid. Your wife wasn't a prison officer. No. Could she understand what you were going through? Yes. Well, funny enough, she'd been inside prison back in the early days of my career, <laughs> in the Acacia days. Mr. Spadano was the general manager. He allowed my wife at the time and another colleague's wife to have a tour of Acacia. Yeah, and that was because I was a senior prison officer and my uh, direct supervisor ran Acacia and we were allowed to bring our partners in to have a tour of where we work, which was quite amazing. I don't think that would uh, be allowed <laughs> now. No way. But um, at the time, it happened. Probably helped a lot too. Yeah, it did. So my wife at the time um, gave her some sort of um, understanding of where I work. and. But you did break up with your wife. Was that due to pressures in the job, do you think? Oh, look, I, I think a lot Were of drinking? things. you drinking? Drinking. I think a lot of things. I uh, had a young child and um, I wouldn't say it was just one thing, Adam, but uh, it was various things. And then you were in a relationship with a woman who was a prison officer. Yeah. Was that easier, do you think, if you were the... Someone who understands what your day to day is. It was like. it was easy because your partner knew exactly what was going on in your life at work and vice versa. And you know, you get home and you understand you've had a hard day, and and they understand, you know, the way you are and vice versa. It was um, it was good in one aspect, but the the other aspect, um, I wouldn't recommend it. There were interpersonal difficulties, and then it all came to a head. On one night, what happened? Uh, we we did break up, um, and I was drinking heavily, uh, medicated heavily, and um, I went around to her place, entered her place, and um, I had a weapon with me, I had a knife. A big knife? A big knife, yeah. And um, we wrestled. Her boyfriend was there at the time. He... he just sat there. What were you intending to do when you went there? Adam, I, I don't know. I, I look back, I've reflected a lot, and I think I, I really wanted to scare her, I suppose, and I did immense behavioural change while I was incarcerated. And during that program, I, I wanted to say that I'm I'm in charge. I, I'm, I say what's going on. You know, As you did every day in your, in your work life? Yeah, yeah, and uh, that, was, that was a scary night. That was... Um, so... You threatened her and her boyfriend. There was a tussle. She was cut by the knife. Yeah. Um, you made threats to kill. Yeah. But in the end, what happened? In the end, um, I had her by the, the neck or the throat area and it with one hand and the other hand I had the knife and I had it uh, in an upright position, you know, and she said, think your daughter, think your daughter. And at that point, I released her and I took a few steps backward and sat down and I broke down in tears. I put the knife down and I broke down in tears and, and we went outside, all three of us, and sat down and um, we spoke for about half an hour. I got driven home um, by her and uh, yeah, it was it was... It was a terrifying act by me and I feel so bad for her and her family, friends, for what I've put her through. Um, yeah, I, 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 
I'm just Has she forgiven you? Oh, look, I don't know, Adam. I'm not allowed to have any contact with her. Or, mm. So that was reported and you were arrested? I was arrested at work, yeah, a couple of weeks later and, yeah. Terrible moment in front of your peers, in front of the inmates? No, it was... Were the inmates f- aware? Well, they would have been aware. Um, news travels fast in prisons. I dare say they would have all known that day. Yeah, so I was on bail. I got bail and I was on bail for 12 months. Drank uh, extremely heavy for that next 12 months. Heavily medicated. I was on three different psych drugs at the time. Drinking copious amounts of alcohol and um, still functioning. I didn't have any contact with prison staff. The only contact I had was, was with the HR operations manager at the time and he spoke to me about three or four occasions and um, embarrassed at the time. She um, decided not to represent me for some reason. So I get a phone call whilst I'm waiting for an operation in hospital. I was getting my knee operated on and uh, I get a phone call from this fellow called Tim. He said, Ash... I said, yes. He goes, I'm Tim. I said, uh, g'day, Tim. And he said, you got caught tomorrow and uh, you're going to get locked up. I said, where's my, where's my other barrister? She goes, oh, she's not representing you anymore, which I don't know why or how. Or Was the fix in? Did someone get to her, or do you think? Or? I don't know why or how, but she did just bail on me. And I've heard plenty of times by prisoners in the past that this does happen. I thought, no, nah, there's no way that would happen. Well, but it, it does. It does. I lived I, it. I come from a family of lawyers, and yep. trust me, it does happen. Because they have to be friendly and seemingly matey, whatever, but they're not. There's yeah. always a barrier between you and the and the council, which they maintain. Yeah. When we did, um, when I decided to plead guilty, me barrister at the time, Lee, she said, at worst case scenario, I'll get three to six months jail. What'd you get? I got three years. Yeah. Tough three years. Now, now we're back in that cell mm. on that first night and you're facing three years of this. Yep. What was your plan? I didn't have a plan. I did not have a plan, but um, I sort of felt that I would be moved to Ararat prison where it's a, a protection type prison. And um, I was, that was on the Thursday I arrived at MAP and on the Saturday I was moved to Ararat and I was moved to a unit called Oliver Unit where as I looked after a lot of those guys whilst I was a prison officer at Parliament. And um, they must have laughed. They did. Source of mirth. Oh, look at you've gone you've gone green, Mr. Absolutely. Blue. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that was um was pretty hard. But after a, a few weeks, they've moved me to a unit which is used for um Korean witnesses. And there was about seven or eight other prisoners in, in at the time, which I knew all of them. And um they were pretty uh, taken back by me walking in there on green. But they all treated me well. Did they yeah. ask why? They say, what, what are you doing yeah. outside now? Yeah, I told them. I told them the truth. I said I stuffed up, you know, and this is what I got. And I couldn't believe I got three years for what I did. But uh, I suppose on reflection, it could have been a lot worse that night. And I'm um, thankful that it wasn't. Yeah. Some prisoners, they say, do time easy. How did you do it? Look, I wouldn't say easy, but I, I utilised the time effectively. Um, I got down to about a, a weight of 73 kilos. I was fit as. What are you now? 99. I wouldn't want to say I'm 100, Adam, but I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty close to 100. Uh, so I went in there at about this weight. 
and I rode um, an exercise bike. I used to ride every day, and I rode 15,000 k's in about 12 months and uh, walked a lot, did a lot of gardening, and um, I met a bloke in there from Geelong, and we got on really, really well, and um, it made the time easy. You know, you had somebody to uh, talk to and confide in, and and uh, it was good. I'm not saying jail was good, but I utilised my time well. Yeah, because you must have looked at what had happened to you, um, your actions, where you were, with a sense of bewilderment. How the hell did I get here? <laughs> Absolutely, I did. But I guess over time, you get some insight into the forces, the influences that led you yeah. to that spot. Yeah. Was it working in Barwon? Was it working in those units in that superheated environment that led to this? Yeah, look, I think it's a number of things, Adam. I think that um, PTSD, depression, alcoholism, medication, and then the betrayal as well, just a cocktail of things. And, and I think that, um, you know, I just flipped and, and did what I did and it's so, I feel so, I feel bad for my actions, but uh, I, I believe that the support or lack of support by management at Barwon or Corrections Victoria on a bigger scale was very poor. It was very poor. The prison psychologists talk about a lot of the men who end up in prison lacking what they call self-soothing skills to stop themselves doing these, particularly when they come out of jail. Yeah. You know? And I wonder if you lacked those same skills at that time. Your dialogue with yourself was yeah. poor. Yeah. Extremely poor. Um, you know, I, I had the blinkers on at big time and, and that they enclosed every day. But having done a 15-month jail and then the remaining on parole, I did participate in um, four or five different programs, a men's behavioural change, um, a violence program, a drug and alcohol program, and uh, I utilised my time well because I thought, well, I'm here, I'm going to make the most of it. And I did, and uh, I've come out a better person. And the way I look at it, I've been given a second chance in life. Mm. Yeah. You're full of remorse and guilt about what happened. Yeah but you're not a bad guy. Have you forgiven yourself? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Good. I have forgiven myself. Um, it took a long time. I couldn't believe what happened, but it did happen, and um, I processed it all. And uh, <laughs> I consider myself a good bloke that did something extremely bad. On one night? On one night, yeah. Yeah. We can't have these things over, but we can forgive ourselves eventually. So you're only 50. I've just turned 50, yeah. Young, strong man. Yes. <laughs> what's what's the rest of your life look like? Well, my daughter's 12. Number one priority for me is being a good father. I have her a fair bit of the time. We have a great relationship. Her mother, my ex-wife, I have a good relationship with her as well. Um, so things are good on the family side of things. I've got a, um, a good network of people now. Um, my brothers and sisters, my, my parents, and also a good family friends, Tony and Sherilyn. That's where I lived when I got released from prison. And um, my network is very small, but it's very good. Big networks are always suspicious. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> in, my, in my view. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Young people listening to this might be considering a uh, career in corrections. I think, not for me, this sounds horrific. But I don't think you'd do too much of it differently. If I have my time over again, I'll do exactly the same thing. You know, it can be a good career, 
it can be if the processes of looking after the staff have improved. Um, debriefing and post-incident care, if that's improved, it could be a good career for a, a person of the, you know, a middle-aged person. Um, I wouldn't recommend a young person get involved in prison life, but it can be, but I, I wouldn't recommend it. Well, you got through it. That's the main thing. Yeah. Thank you for being a guest on Real Crime Interviews and thank you for your service. Thank you, Adam. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.